You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Physician scientists are stretched to the max, one foot by the bed and the other by the bench. What makes them choose this life? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that funds the testing of existing therapies for new diseases. And my guest is Dr. Raghu Mirmira, Associate Professor of Medicine and Associate Director of the Diabetes and Hormone Center of Excellence at the University of Virginia School of Medicine in Charlottesville, Virginia. Dr. Mirmira and I are discussing his dual practice, part of the time with diabetic patients and part of the time with diabetic research. Dr. Mirmira, welcome to ReachMD. Pleasure to be here. Tell us, what's life like for a physician scientist? I think that, in my opinion, it is terrific. It is also very busy, as you can imagine. One of the really rewarding aspects of this career is that I not only do science at the bench, study the diseases and the underlying mechanisms of those diseases, but I actually have this potential to translate that to the patient. And and seeing the patient every day really reminds me what I'm doing at the bench and why I'm doing it. And as you can imagine, as a physician scientist, there's a lot going on. There are the people in the lab that I need to keep track of. There's the science that I need to follow, the scientific conferences that I need to go to. Yet at the same time, there's the, the pressures of seeing the patient, dealing with individual problems, sometimes problems that stretch beyond the disease itself, with other related disorders. And following up with these patients, sometimes they get very ill, seeing them in the hospital and so forth. You can imagine that it can get very, very busy, but it's certainly very rewarding. So you're in both an MD and a PhD. Which one did you do first? I did my MD PhD as part of a program that um, is run by the National Institutes of Health, and it's been over 35 years running now. And this program allows students to enter right after college or shortly thereafter into a dual degree program that that really combines the two degrees in a way that really sort of integrates them, not just that they're separate and distinct, but that they're integrated. And that's really what being a physician scientist is all about. So actually, I earned my my PhD first, and that's just the way the program runs. And then two years later, I obtained my MD, again, in in a very integrated way versus what a regular medical student would experience during his years of medical school. How was your program different? Well, I enter the medical school with all the medical students, so we do two years of medical schooling. And then at that point, usually the first two years of any medical school are mostly didactic sessions, classrooms. And then after that, it's all practical. You go and see patients for the remaining two years. That's a good break point for when I would then leave and do research. And then uh, I would return after my research, after obtaining my PhD, to do the more practical clinical side and then eventually obtain my MD. So it, it obviously takes longer than if you were just doing a straight MD, somewhere in the range of three to five years longer. So obviously it requires a certain level of commitment to complete. What helped you make the decision to become an MD-PhD instead of just one or the other? I think that when I was an undergraduate in college, I was exposed to a lot of research. And in fact, it didn't dawn upon me that, and, and I was certainly interested in becoming an MD at the time, and I think that a lot of college students even today engage in a lot of research but don't recognize, in my opinion, that there's a real way to integrate the two. And I think it was really only in my last year in college when my advisor, my mentor, 
who was overseeing my research, strongly encouraged me to follow the track of an MD-PhD rather than just an MD. And I think that my interest in sort of the clinical side of medicine is really what drove me to get an MD. So obviously I think that you could do what I did as an MD, or you could do what I did as a PhD, but I think, again, it's a, it's a certain training, uh, if you will, of the mind to think a certain way, both as a clinician as a re- and as a researcher, that you wouldn't get doing one or the other alone. So how many years have you been an MD-PhD? Well, I received my last degree, which was my MD, back in 1993. So I've been in this business now for uh, about 14 years. Tell us what it was like when you first got to wherever you got to. Did you start at the University of Virginia? No. I received my MD and PhD at the University of Chicago. After that, I went to the University of California at San Francisco to do my MD residency in internal medicine and then a fellowship in in diabetes, and then did additional research there before coming to the University of Virginia seven years ago. So I spent about seven to eight years in training before I came here. And when you got to the University of Virginia, you were a young investigator and you didn't have a clinical practice. Tell us what it was like getting started there. It was actually not as difficult as it might seem. I think that one of the keys for young people getting into this profession is finding the right environment. So an environment that understands the needs of a physician scientist and how to really nurture that career. And I think that that was really what made the University of Virginia ideal for me. They provided me with time to sort of and money, which is crucial, to get my research program underway, provided me with an opportunity to see patients, but not an onerous opportunity, so that I wasn't required to see patients all the time. And I had a very limited period of time in which I saw a patient, which was only about a half day a week. So that combination was what really sort of nurtured my career along these last seven years to the point where I am today. You are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, and I'm speaking with Dr. Raghu Mirmira from the University of Virginia School of Medicine, who's telling us what it's like to be a physician scientist. So it's a number of years later, and you're a more senior scientist. What do you see are the challenges for researchers at your stage of your career? The biggest challenge right now is funding. This is really the sort of crux of of research, uh, is being able to be funded. And, and, And most of our funding right now comes from the National Institutes of Health. And the past five years has seen significant declines in the levels of funding at the NIH. And I think that that has caused a lot of people who might otherwise have been very promising scientists to actually leave the field. That is perhaps the biggest challenge. When, when funding is good at the NIH, it's, it's really remarkable how much more individuals you see as physician scientists. But I think right now that's the biggest challenge. Once we get that funding level back up, I think that you'll see greater numbers. So what happens to those who are physician scientists and don't get funded? Where do they go? Unfortunately, many of them are relegated to go see patients full-time, I mean, which is, you know, fine. Obviously, we need very good doctors, but that's not really what these people were trained to do. They were trained to be good doctors and good scientists. And so I consider it a failure when a physician scientist either is a full-time scientist or a full-time physician because that wasn't really the goal. And so it's unfortunate, but when funding levels decline, I think that most people go where they can actually sustain a career. 
and I don't blame them, but it's an unfortunate part of the system. So besides the NIH, what are the other funding sources, and how do they work together or not work together? Obviously, it depends on the field that you're in. There is a lot of private funding sources that provide, in some cases, almost as much money as an NIH grant would provide. In the case of my area, which is diabetes research, there's two major funding organizations outside of the NIH. One is the American Diabetes Association, and the other is the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. And I have grants from both of those organizations in addition to a grant from the NIH. And then there are still others, individuals and and small organizations that are very dedicated to seeing a particular disease cured. And those people actually provide a very important source of funding because they often provide the funding that becomes the seed for new ideas. And, And I have funding from those sources as well, both private individuals and small foundations that really want to see new pathways or avenues opened up for uh, future research where more money could be infused either from the NIH or one of these other foundations. Is it harder for the NIH or one of the large foundations to provide that seed money? They provide it, but oftentimes, you know, getting seed money is just as difficult as getting money for the regular research grants because the way the the grants are reviewed, it's hard for the people at the NIH and these big foundations to sort of change their mode of thinking. I think that they look at every grant as a as a grant that has to have the rigor of the preliminary data. And I think that that's when it becomes very difficult to get that kind of funding when you just have a great idea but don't have anything else to, to back it up. So that's really where those private small foundations and individual donors become very important. So you get the initial data started, and now your idea has more promise. The next time you submit to one of these large organizations or the NIH, do you have a much better chance of getting funded? Absolutely, and that's certainly what happened in my case. So I'd been funded by an individual and a small foundation that allowed me to sort of investigate further an idea. That idea then blossomed into a grant that was uh, really a five-year grant from the American Diabetes Association. And then similarly, another idea blossomed into a grant that got funded by the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. And then yet another idea eventually blossomed into an NIH grant. So it just goes to show how important these small grants are and contributions from individuals, no matter how small, how important those can be. So how often do you or other researchers like you end up applying year after year to a big organization or the NIH until you get funded? I would say right now, the average physician scientist is somewhere between the age of 40 and 42 before he gets his first NIH grant. It's not very young, considering that I got my MD and my PhD when I was 28. It's a pretty looming prospect to think that it would take me another 12, 14 years before I can get my first NIH grant. So it's a very difficult thing, obviously, when when you're coming out, starting this business, to look at something like that and say, wow, I'm in it for the long haul. And so that is somewhat discouraging. Oftentimes, people have to submit a grant two to three times before getting funded, and it takes, the way the cycles work, it takes typically two to three years. I want to thank Dr. Raghu Mirmira of the University of Virginia School of Medicine for sharing his life story with us. I am attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients through repurposing existing therapies for new uses. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.